Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. That proverbial battered can, Congress has kicked it again down Constitution Avenue. The latest continuing resolution keeps the government going until March 1st for some agencies, March 8th for others, and for what has to happen next, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And at least they didn't do it over the weekend, but in the broad daylight of the regular news cycle, what really has to happen now? Well, we're sort of at the same position we've been in for months here, where um, there's a new deadline, uh, punting partial funding into, you know, almost the, what, fifth, sixth month of the year now. So um, Congress is still working to come to what to spend in total on the 12 different bills. They, they've kind of come to an agreement and they're going to stick to it on the overall funding level, but they're still figuring out what to put in the bills and then write those bills and try to package them together and get them over the line. Um, and, you know, the longer this goes, the more they'll talk about what else to attach to it. And that's one of the questions that I think we'll be looking at when the House comes back into town a week from now and when the Senate is here this week. And it looks like probably about half of the Republicans in both houses voted for it. That's right. I think it was almost right down the middle on the House, maybe 107 on one side and 106 on the other. Democrats did a lot of the heavy lifting in both chambers to get this over the line, which is what we expected. They had to get something that had that sort of support because what we've been seeing is House Republicans tanking procedural votes, which you might have needed if it was a more conservative-oriented type of continuing resolution. But this was kind of a straight down the middle, keep things funded where they are, no major changes, a couple of tweaks here and there. But um, like you said, it's just delaying this process for a few more weeks to give Congress time to do its work. So there have been no modifications then to the full-year top-line numbers that were agreed to couple of months ago at this point now. Right. The the deal that they emerged with right coming out of the recess, getting into this period where it seemed that maybe Speaker Mike Johnson was wavering a little bit about what he had agreed to, but it seems like they, they're back to agreeing to that. Both the top line number that was written into the debt limit deal last year, and then what's been referred to as the side deal, this um, how much you can use to offset spending to reduce the total and, and what sort of people might call gimmicks, but other people would call accounting maneuvers you can use. Um, one of them, of course, is to cancel $20 billion from the IRS this year rather than doing it 10 this year, 10 the next. Um, so that deal has, has been factored into this, but we're still waiting to see how that will materialize in the actual spending legislation. And so far as we speak, it looks like Mike Johnson will not be tossed as speaker, but I guess that's still, given what happened to the last speaker, a possibility, right? It is. It's always out there. The motion to vacate, to call it, only takes one member, which was um, what happened to Kevin McCarthy when one member, Matt Gates, filed it and had enough people on his side to execute that. Uh, the majority in the House is getting slimmer for Republicans. As of yesterday, uh, Mike Johnson from Ohio has resigned. Um, that we had Kevin McCarthy leave at the end of the year and a vacancy with George Santos being expelled. So there's even fewer Republicans now, and um, you only need a couple now to really side with the Democrats, and you could tank a bill, you could take a vote, or you could even vacate the chair if the Democrats went along with it as they did uh, last year. So that threat is always hanging over Johnson's head. And uh, I think his members are willing to use it and talk about it to try and influence the kind of policy decisions he's making. All right. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And what about the other agreements they had with, well, the other discussions they had with respect to Ukraine and Israel, funding, aid, and also 
well, and the border and immigration thing. Those were kind of tied together and they keep bouncing like billiard balls off the budget talks. It's a tale of two chambers. In the Senate, you have these talks going on between um, James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma, and Chris Murphy, a Connecticut Democrat, and then Kirsten Sinema's there, and other members are involved too. They've been trying to come up with a package of immigration changes, border security provisions that can ride along with that Ukraine aid as it's been seen as tied to that. There was a, what members who were there described as a productive meeting at the White House where the congressional leaders um, both the top leaders and then some of the leaders on Ukraine and other issues gathered at the White House. So um, there had been some optimism of votes this week on some sort of package. We'll be watching to see if that happens, um, if it can line up all the support and if members are happy with what emerges, because the other factor here is Donald Trump, um, who was the president and wants to be president again, hasn't liked what he's seen and has made some noises about it, which has, um, I think, made some people uncomfortable. And then Mike Johnson has to get something through his conference, and they want a pretty tight version of this, um, like they passed last year. And we'll have to see what they can and will support if um, the Senate does emerge with some sort of deal. Right. And surprisingly, the House is on recess again next week. It seems like they just got back from the holidays. Yeah, they had kind of set this schedule up and they had these dates for the CR um, for January 19th and February 2nd. This would have been a week in between then, even if they had met the January 19th deadline for some things. But um, we'll have to, you know, they'll, they'll come back and they'll resume their agenda. A lot of these talks that are going on, though, can be handled by people over the phone in terms of agreeing to top line numbers for each of the spending bills and then maybe starting those talks in earnest. Is there any other business before Congress? I mean, there's always business before Congress. Even a so-called unproductive Congress has hundreds of bills. And anything else we can anticipate being discussed? Nominees? Definitely nominees. There are some on the floor this week for the Amtrak Board of Directors, and committees are starting to fire up and deal with some of the nominees that were sent back to the White House and returned. Um, We'll see some votes this week on those, including some for the State Department. The judicial nomination factory is churning again at Judiciary. Uh, And then there's this tax deal that was announced last week, bipartisan with the Ways and Means chairman, a Republican from Missouri, and the Senate Finance chairman, who's a Democrat from Oregon, with a pretty big deal on business tax breaks and the child tax credit. And we'll see what's happening with that. And as they try to build support, they'd really like to move that as soon as possible to try and influence this tax filing season. But um, it will remains to be seen where that rides and how it might get through. But that's something we'll be watching, especially after the action on that last week in committee. And I was talking to one of the uh, top whistleblower attorneys recently, uh, just the other day, Steve Cohn of Cohn Cohn Calapinto. He said there's a bunch of bills for whistleblower support that have bipartisan support that have been passed unanimously in one house or the other, one chamber or the other, but they never seem to quite make it into law. There's a lot of stuff like that that they agree to that seems reasonably routine, fixing up things and tightening up where policy needs to be tightened up. Why do those things never actually come out and get voted on and by both parties and go to the president? There's that's, Whistleblowers is just one example. Sometimes it's floor time. Can you get these things over the line in the House and the Senate? The House has mechanisms to deal with things quickly. The Senate, if everyone agrees, they can do it. But some of these bills, if one senator objects, it can be harder to do. Um, And then you look for legislative vehicles. That's one of the things we talk about a lot. A different bill that has to move that becomes a place to put your bill. Um, The spending bill coming up, whenever it's ready for March 1st or March 8th, that'll be an attractive vehicle. NDAA is always a big one. This tax deal could be a vehicle or could itself be looking for one. So um, a lot of it is 
who in leadership you can persuade to move your bill and when and where they might be willing to insert it so that it can get over the line and, and the finish line. But um, there are a lot of bills, bipartisan nature, that stall out um, at some point during the Congress and have to start over in the new one. So um, that, that is a fate for a lot of pieces of legislation. Yeah, because normal people look at this and say, well, the Democrats are OK with it. The Republicans are OK with it. Vote on it. How long does that take? There's a lot of machinery that people aren't aware of, I guess. Yeah, the process takes a while. In the Senate, it can take 10, 11 days to move a bill, um, depending on how many procedural votes you need to take on it. So that that can really slow things down. Well, yeah, as we've seen, Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Let's hope for the best. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.